Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. With one another, and I hope this is going to be a helpful message for you today. In fact, this message, as I prepared this series in the last few months, this is a particular message that I have been hoping and praying would be meaningful to some of you. And and maybe that God might have even arranged for you to be here for a day like today. For the last three weeks here at Heritage, we've been talking about the difficult, challenging topic of depression. And we have titled this series, Out of the Cave. And if I'm honest, I wasn't sure how the church would respond to a prolonged series on this subject. I wasn't exactly sure how it would be received, what people would think about, you know, five weeks on this topic of depression. But the conversations that we have been having after the messages, the conversations I've had in the lobby and on the phone and the conversations and feedback and even the gratitude that I've heard tells me that this is a topic that we need to discuss as a church family. This is a topic that we need to address because there are lots of people in our family who are dealing with this, who are in the midst of this fight, trying to wrestle with this problem. You know, I can remember a conversation that I had with my granddad a few years ago. At the time, he was 95 years old. He would eventually live to be 97 before he passed, but at 95, he was starting to show some signs of slowing down quite a bit. He wasn't as <clears throat> Excuse me. He wasn't as mobile or as strong as he once was. He certainly wasn't as quick to get up and wasn't as quick to sit back down as he once was. Wasn't that, you know, energetic presence that I remember from my younger years. But as we were talking that day when he was 95, I could tell he was feeling down about not being able to participate in as many activities, not being able to contribute in some specific ways. And he told me, and I'll never forget his words that day. He said, you know, 95 years old, that's about long enough. In fact, it may be too long. And you can probably imagine that as he said that, my heart was breaking. As he said that, I was thinking to myself about how much value my granddad was bringing to my life, about how important he was to me, about how much I wanted him to be involved in my life and the life of my wife and my kids, and how much he he was absolutely like just a joy to me. But I think in that moment, my granddad was wrestling with a bout of depression. I think at that time in his life, one of the triggers for my granddad that left him experiencing depression was when he felt like his life was not making a meaningful contribution. He wasn't sure, he couldn't see what his life was adding to the lives of the people around him. You know, none of us like to feel like we're not making any difference. We all know the frustration of knowing that our effort is not really adding up to anything. I mean, there's something about working on a project that's not necessary, you know, something about working on a task that's menial that just drives us crazy because we know that in the end, like, you know, 
nobody's going to appreciate that. It's not going to matter to anybody. And even if you're getting paid for your time, none of us like to exhaust ourselves on a project that's not going to matter in the end. And that's because we are meaning-making creatures. We are people who instill meaning. We, we put meaning onto so many of the things that we do and the things that happen to us and the circumstances that we experience. In fact, most psychologists believe that it's our ability to ascribe meaning to our lives that's one of the most fundamental parts of what it means to be a human. But it's not just a part of our distinctiveness, our meaning making, the fact that we ascribe meaning to so much that happens to us and so much of what we do, it's part of our mental health. We're more healthy when we feel like our lives are making a difference. We're more healthy when, we're feel, when we feel like we're having a positive impact on somebody or something in the world around us. But in our culture, in this day and time, we're finding that it's really easy to get discouraged about our meaning. It's really common to find ourselves and the people around us feeling like our contribution doesn't mean all that much. Like we're not adding a lot of value. Like maybe we're not worth what we'd like to be worth. You know, I think it was a, just a divine coincidence, but I found out this week that the month of May is National Mental Health Awareness Month. I didn't realize that before this week, and this series has been planned for quite some time, but it turns out that this year is the 74th observance of National Mental Health Awareness Month, which has been happening since 1949 to help increase awareness and remove the stigma and to make resources available for people who are struggling with mental illness, which means that for decades we've known, it's been pretty common knowledge that there are lots of people in our culture, lots of people in our communities who are struggling with anxiety and depression but what, what we may not realize is just how intense the increase of those struggles has been over the last couple of years as we have faced a global pandemic and so many other world events that have been happening all around us. At the beginning of this month, at the kickoff of National Mental Health Awareness Month, the White House issued a study, a statement that talked about how the rate of depression in the United States has tripled compared to the rates that we were seeing in 2019. And frontline workers, healthcare workers, people who have been out in the public in the leading edge of the response have been disproportionately affected. In fact, in my study, I found statistic after statistic, study after study that said that right now, about one out of every three healthcare workers is dealing with ongoing symptoms of depression. And likewise, about one out of every four public school teachers is dealing with ongoing symptoms of depression. And when you think about what some of those professionals have been through over the last couple of years, it's easy to see why that would be so prevalent. Our healthcare workers have been on the front line dealing with this pandemic and trying to combat COVID-19. And we've seen over a million people in our country alone who have died with this virus. And it's put a major strain on the people who are trying to keep us healthy. In the classroom, teachers have had to adjust to accommodate online learning and learning with social distancing and masks. And nowadays, even though some of those precautions have been removed, they're playing catch up and trying to make up for the lost time that happened when the students got put behind by the challenging 
circumstances. And then you think about how difficult this has been for the people in these helping professions, people who have dedicated their lives to serving others, and yet it's easy to see how it can get very discouraging when you feel like your effort isn't having the same impact. It's not making the same difference that it used to make. And so it turns out one of the major components of depression, one of the big risk factors or the effects of depression is that it makes you question yourself and it makes you question your purpose in life. It makes you question how influential, how effective, how meaningful your contribution to the world really is. Depression can make you lose your sense of direction in your life. And when your life lacks meaning, it's easy to slip into despair, which is what I want us to talk about this morning. But first, first I want to remind you of where we've been so far in this series. Particularly if you've missed any of the weeks in this series, I don't want you to miss some of the progress that we've made because one of the most important things we've tried to do in this series is to remove any stigma and shame that is associated with depression, especially any stigma or shame that exists in the church. You see, there's this ugly, dangerous lie that's in circulation out there. There's a lie that sometimes we find ourselves buying into that says people of faith who experience depression must have a weak faith. And we need to tell you that's a lie, that that's not true. There's a lie going on out there that says that if you just trust God more, that you wouldn't deal with any mental health issues. And in this series, I've been sharing my conviction and the conviction of our leadership team with you that mental health is just as natural as, I'm sorry, mental illness is just as natural as physical illness. And it deserves the same kind of sympathy and concern and treatment. And so I wanna remind you before we kick into the text this morning, I'm not a counselor. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a mental health professional of any kind. I know people with those credentials and that training that I can connect you to if you need some help. But in this series, what we're doing is looking at some of the underlying spiritual problems that can contribute to depression, that can trigger depression. And we're exploring some of the spiritual resources that are available to people who are fighting the fight against depression as well. So we're going to dive into the text this morning. Throughout this series, we've been studying an Old Testament prophet that's, whose story is recorded in the book of 1 Kings in the Old Testament portion of your Bible. His name's Elijah, and we've been specifically looking at an episode from his life in chapter 19 of 1 Kings. And what we've discovered there is that Elijah, who was known throughout Israel as this bold, courageous spokesperson for God, he got to a point in his ministry where he wondered if it was having any positive effect at all. He got to a point in his ministry where he started to become fearful. He started to become discouraged. He felt like there wasn't a positive next step forward for him. He had watched as God had done some really incredible things in, before his very eyes. In fact, Elijah had a front row seat to some of the most undeniable demonstrations of God's presence in all of human history. But then in chapter 19, Elijah finds himself discouraged. He finds himself discouraged not because of the experiences that he got to be a part of, but because of the results that he wasn't seeing. 
You see, Elijah thought of himself as somebody who was right in the thick of God's plan to change Israel's future, to lead Israel into a more faithful path. And he thought to himself, I've done everything I know to do. I have like used every tool available to me. I have tried to follow God's instructions and it doesn't seem like it's paying off. I mean, the more he, he thought that the more he did on God's behalf, the more signs that he showed of God's presence, that there would be this huge movement away from idolatry throughout Israel. He thought that over time, the ministry work was going to gain momentum. It was going to pick up steam and it was going to get easier. And he's sitting here in chapter 19 thinking, I've done all of that and it's not working. In fact, he's not, he, he doesn't feel like he's getting any results at all. He feels like things are getting worse. The longer he worked, the more boldly he spoke for God, the more dangerous and risky and scary the job seemed to get. And so in chapter 19, verse 14, he summarized his feelings by stating this to God. He said, God, I have been very zealous or passionate for the Lord God Almighty, which is to say, I have been like really after your purposes, God. I've been trying to do what you have asked me to do. And he says, in the midst of all of that, the Israelites, these people you sent me to help change, he says, they've rejected your covenant. They've destroyed, they've torn down your altars. They put all the other prophets to death with the sword. He says, I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. Elijah's looking at all the circumstances around him and he's thinking to himself, not only is this not getting better, we're down to the wire here and things are absolutely getting worse. And he's dealing with a bout of depression. He couldn't see how things could possibly improve. And in the midst of his despair, it got bad enough that Elijah asked God to take his life. He said, God, just put me out of my misery. He said, I, I'm not doing any better than the people that you sent before me. And, the, and he says, I'm as good as dead anyway, because the people who have killed all the other prophets are coming and looking for me now. And so he pleaded with God. He said, this is pointless. This is meaningless. And I believe that his hopelessness was rooted in his feeling of uselessness. Remember the story of Sisyphus? When you studied Greek mythology in school and you read the Iliad or you told the teacher you read the Iliad, you know, all of that kind of thing. And, and there was this story in there about this mortal who was, who was sentenced to a lifetime of pushing a large boulder up a hill. But the problem was that every time he would nearly get to the crest of the hill, the boulder would suddenly roll all the way back down and he was doomed. He was condemned to a lifetime of this just repetitive, useless work and try as he might, he was never, ever going to be successful with that. So it rendered his entire life pointless. It was this endless exercise in futility. Well, this is where Elijah is. He's taking stock of everything he's done, everything he's experienced with God, and he's feeling like Sisyphus because the effort that he's poured in didn't get the results that he expected. He thought there would be this major renewal, this revival among the people of Israel. He thought there would be a seismic shift and a turning back to God, but instead his job just kept getting harder. And there's a deeper issue. There's a, an underlying issue that's happening here because every time Elijah thinks about his own contributions being fruitless, every time he thinks about his own effort not paying off, 
he's actually also imagining that God's project is failing. He's thinking to himself, you know, I'm the only one left here, and if God's counting on me, this is not working. And so it's a big problem for his faith. I mean, his faith is shaky. His faith is wavering because his confidence in God's plan keeps taking one hit after another. And here's the deal. Elijah has made the mistake of believing that the success of God's plan is dependent on Elijah's contributions. He has made the mistake of allowing himself to believe that his numbers, that his success rate, that his conversion rate is how God is going to make progress doing what God wants to do. And he's also mistakenly started to believe that God's really only got one strategy, one trick, that it's just a shock and awe campaign to reach the people. And if the people aren't impressed with the showdown at Mount Carmel, and if they're not impressed with the miracles they've seen Elijah call in, and if they're not impressed with the three-year drought followed by an immediately, you know, predicted rain that Elijah brought forth, if they're not impressed with that, well, then what is there left? And this is the distress that Elijah's wrestling with. He's thinking, this, this whole plan has been a failure. This is the distress that brought Elijah out to the desert. But what we find in 1 Kings 19 is that God met Elijah in the desert. And as it turns out, God was not finished using Elijah to change the world. And so beginning in verse 15, we discover that God was simply not willing to let Elijah quit. He wasn't accepting Elijah's resignation. He wasn't going to take Elijah's life as requested because God still had work for Elijah to do. Here's what God had to say. Read along with me. Chapter, chapter 19, verse 15, the Lord said to Elijah, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things here. Number one, notice what God doesn't say. God does not address Elijah's anxiety and depression. Like he doesn't stop and say, Elijah, I am so sorry you're feeling that way. You know, like he, he doesn't confirm Elijah's fears. He doesn't give power and, and pour more energy into Elijah's complaint. And the reason for that, as we're about to discover, is because all of Elijah's assumptions, all of his statements about what's really happening in Israel, they're not, they're not right. Elijah's suspicions were incorrect. And where Elijah was seeing failure and stagnation, God saw a plan that was working. God saw a plan that was going exactly as he expected it to go. The problem was Elijah, Elijah just didn't have the perspective to understand everything that was happening in his country. But I also want to point out this other thing that when God spoke to Elijah, he said, I want you to go back the way you came. If you were to look at a world map and zoom in on a picture of the Middle East, God was asking Elijah to go back from the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula all the way through Palestine, up through northern Israel, and all the way across the northern border of that nation into Syria or the nation of Aram. He was supposed to go back by the same route that he had traveled, back into the territory of the people who wanted to kill him. And I've got to imagine, Elijah just didn't hear this and think, oh, goody. I mean, God was saying, I want you to go someplace dangerous. 
I want you to go someplace where you're not in control. In fact, Elijah was probably terrified by this. But God wasn't intimidated. God wasn't worried. God wasn't terrified because of the threats that were being made against his prophet. And in actuality, there was nothing that Elijah's enemies could possibly do to Elijah without God expressly allowing it to happen. And so God sent Elijah to go back the way he came. And in the process, God was going to give Elijah a series of new prophetic assignments because God was not finished with Elijah yet. And so here's what he said. Verse 15, Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazael. And I'm going to have some fun just taking a stab at some pronunciations of names here, okay? So you can laugh with me. Anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Saphat, from Abel-Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Yeah, we're just guessing on some of these pronunciations, and it's okay. But then he says... He says, Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Now listen to what God is doing here for Elijah. He's giving Elijah an assignment to anoint three new world leaders, but not just any leaders. The very first one, God is sending Elijah into a foreign nation, the nation of Aram, which is in modern-day Syria. And this is fascinating because Aram is an enemy nation to the people of Israel. God is sending Elijah into an enemy country to tell them who their next king is going to be. He's sending Elijah across the border into enemy territory to install a king in Damascus who was going to be part of God's plan to carry out judgment against the unfaithfulness of Israel. But then God also asked Elijah to go back into Israel, to cross back over the border into his home nation and to anoint a new king there, which doesn't sound particularly dramatic until you remember that there's already a king in Israel. And so if Elijah's going to go into King Ahab's country and say, Jehu's going to be the next king, you got to imagine Ahab and Jezebel are not going to be very thrilled about this, right? I mean, there's a lot of high drama that's going on here and anointing a new king while the current king is still living, that's dangerous business. But that's exactly what God's calling Elijah to do. And then this third element of God's plan is that he's calling Elijah to anoint and to begin to train his own successor, a prophet with a very similar name named Elisha. And this has a message with it. Because when God says, I want you to train and anoint your own successor, God is saying, your ministry's not done. God is saying your work is going to even outlive you. Your legacy is going to continue. You are going to have a lasting impact on the world because I'm not finished with you yet. Here's God sending Elijah to carry out these three mission-critical tasks, but in the midst of all of that, he doesn't want him to feel alone, and so God lets him in on a little secret that he's been keeping. In chapter 19, verse 18, God says this, he says, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel. This, what this means is there are 7,000 people in the nation of Israel, who, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. 
God says, Elijah, you're not alone. You're not the only one. You're not by yourself. In fact, there are a bunch of people that you didn't even realize who are continuing to push forward in the same direction that you're trying to go. God says, Elijah, I haven't left you all alone. I've actually established a team. I've created a group of people who are trying to make the same revival in Israel happen that you're striving for. And so Elijah wasn't by himself, even though he couldn't see it. And Elijah, his life wasn't useless, even though he couldn't feel it. And in the end, Elijah wasn't finished doing big things for God. The problem was he had just temporarily disconnected from his true purpose. He had forgotten that he wasn't in charge of outcomes. He had forgotten that when God was on his side, he could never possibly be alone. He had forgotten about his true calling, his true purpose, and so in that moment, he thought that his life had no meaning. And this is the thing. This is the thing that depression can do to us. When we get disconnected from our purpose, that can be a contributing factor for depression. Because challenges and hardships happen in this life and we start running into circumstances that are discouraging and we feel like we're not getting the results we want and try as we might, things just aren't working out the way that we want them to work out. And when that happens, we can start to lose sight of God and that can be a trigger for depression in our lives. So on the one hand, missing out on purpose or losing sight of our purpose can cause depression. But on the flip side, sometimes when we're already wrestling with depression, sometimes when our genetic, our genetic makeup or our trauma background, some of the things that have already happened to us are causing us to deal with depression, well, then that can also make us lose sight of our purpose. And so you've got this two sides of the same coin, and it becomes this vicious cycle. And the, the constant there is that everybody wrestling with depression starts to lose sight of the purpose for their life. But when we tune into the voice of God, Elijah was standing there in the cave and God was speaking to him. And when we tune into the voice of God, listen, when we tune into the Holy Spirit speaking to us, when we listen to what God is trying to tell us through the community of believers in Jesus that we surround ourselves with, when we listen to what God has to say to us through the pages of Scripture, we find that God is trying to remind us of our calling. God's trying to remind us of our purpose. When, when we start to wonder if our life matters at all, if, if there's any hope for tomorrow, God is reminding us that there's this big story of redemption being written and that we have a part we have a role to play. We have a job to do. We just have to learn to look for it. We have to learn to pursue what God is asking us to do. We have to learn to see what God is doing. And the good news is, the good news that I have to offer you this morning is that when you find yourself facing a moment in life where the circumstances are bleak, when you find yourself in one of those seasons of life where it feels like things are not going well, that's the perfect moment to say, God, what am I supposed to see? That's the perfect moment to ask, God, what is it that I'm missing? What is it that I'm not remembering? Remind me of the bigger picture. There was an apostle named Paul, one of the earliest Christian missionaries 
who knew exactly what this felt like. He went through seasons in his life, seasons in his ministry life where he suffered setback after setback after setback. And he faced problems like persecution and arrest and he spent time in prison and he got shipwrecked and he got snake bit. And I mean, just a whole long litany of things. You could just make a long list of all the challenges that Paul faced. But in the midst of all of that, he was able to be at peace. In fact, he was able to be excited he was able to be energized because he remembered that God was using all of that to tell an incredible story and to change the world. He knew that there were people who were discovering grace for the first time as they saw him respond to all the challenges he was facing. He knew that the experiences that he was going through where he felt like he was just running into roadblocks and hurdles, he knew that God was using that to tell a bigger story. And so Paul said this, he said, therefore, we do not lose heart, which is to say we don't give up. We don't give up, even though outwardly we are wasting away, which, which is like saying even though all of our circumstances, everything that we can see looks like it's not going well. He says even though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. We're remembering who we really are. We're being reminded God's spirit, God's people, God's word are reminding us of who we really are and what we're called to be. And so verse 17, he says, because our light and momentary troubles, the things that we're going through right now that seem so hard, they are achieving for us an eternal glory, something that's permanent, that far outweighs all of these challenges that we're facing. And then he concludes that paragraph with this verse that I don't want you to miss. He says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen. We don't get distracted by the circumstances that we're aware of. This was Elijah's problem, was that all he was focusing on was the things he could see, the things he understood, the things he could control, the things that he knew were immediate problems in his life. Paul says, we don't fix our eyes on the things that we can see. We fix our eyes on the things we can't see. We remember how big God is. We remind ourselves of what God is up to. We remind ourselves of the promises of God's big story, Paul says, because what is seen is temporary. The challenges we're facing, that's temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. You know, Paul knew the story of Elijah backwards and forwards spent most of his early life memorizing portions of the Old Testament, studying it backward from front to back. He had studied this all of his life. And I'm convinced that one of the lessons Paul learned from Elijah's story was never count God out. Don't ever count God out, even if you can't see what God's doing. And then Paul had his own experiences, his own life story, where he saw that God always has a plan for people who are living for him. Paul learned that as long as we're still breathing, God still has a purpose for our life. And we're not finished until God says we're finished. Which means that contrary to what we can see, contrary to what we can feel, contrary to what we understand, we always have something bigger than ourselves to keep on living for. Some of you know the story of Victor Frankel. 
He wrote what has been called one of the ten most influential books in our nation's history, Man's Search for Meaning, which tells about his experiences being a prisoner in a concentration camp during the Holocaust. And he was a psychologist who was already a very accomplished and learned scholar, and so he was watching very attentively some of the ways that the fellow prisoners in the in the concentration camp were responding to their situation. And after he was liberated and discovered that almost his entire family had been killed during those years, he started to reflect and he started to write and talk about what his experience was like and what he witnessed in other people's experience. And one of the things he noticed, one of the profound realizations that he saw was that the people in the concentration camps who were convicted that they had something powerful to live for, something meaningful to do with their lives, a calling that they had to carry out, that those people fared better than those who gave up hope, those who didn't find meaning, those who were stuck wondering if there was any reason to move forward. And Viktor Frankl asks this question, will we allow our pain to consume us? Will we allow our pain to consume us or will we live for something bigger, something more meaningful, something that sustains us even in our grief, our depression, and our anxiety? And that's the question I want to ask you this morning. Is what is your life going to be about? What are you going to live for? What's going to be the meaning that gives your life purpose? Because see, the thing is, we live in a world, we live in a world that's so divided. We live in a world that wants to divide us. We live in a world where we pay money on a monthly basis for a cable bill so that people can tell us how everything's wrong with the other people in the world. Like we live in a world that is constantly trying to divide us and telling us telling us that our personal story is more important than somebody else's personal story. Yesterday, I know you know this, yesterday there was a mass shooting in Buffalo, New York. And by all accounts, it appears that the perpetrator believed the story, believed the lie that says our world is better when there's not too many people in it that look different than me. He believed a lie, and lives were destroyed. We live in a a world where there's constant division between political views and constant division between lifestyles and constant division between this and that, and here we are. We're the people. We are the people who have a story that's better than all of that. We are the people who live out a story, who have been invited into a story that's bigger and better than any of those lies that we're being told. We are the people who are living into the story, and we do it initially just by gathering together. We're living into a story that says, It doesn't matter that we don't look the same. It doesn't matter that we don't think the same. It doesn't matter that we don't live the same. It doesn't matter that we don't come from the same place. We can love one another because of the bigger story. This is who we are. This is the story we're telling. This is the story that gives our life 
meaning. And so every week we, we get together to remind each other of the story, to remind each other that God has a purpose for you and God has a purpose for me. And part of God's purpose for you and for me is a purpose for us to tell the world the big story of redemption.